Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. This podcast is part of our Bible study series, The Waters of Shiloh, which takes us through the first 12 chapters of Isaiah and is led by Pastor Mark Gravrock. And now, here's Pastor Mark with an opening song. Waters of Shiloh, gentle flowing true. Waters of Shiloh, always enough for you. Child, will you trust me when the storms draw near? Waters of Shiloh, flowing fresh and clear. Gracious God, our constant, gentle, trustworthy waters of Shiloh. Thank you for who you are. As you gather us today around your word, open us to those fresh, refreshing waters and teach us to trust in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we are in the chapters 7 and 8 of Isaiah. We'll be almost exclusively there in chapters 7 and 8. I will have up on the screen a passage from 2nd uh, second, second Kings, but you don't need to worry about looking that up. It will all be on the screen. Isaiah 7 and 8. Some scholars have called this these two chapters the Emmanuel book, uh, partly because Emmanuel shows up uh, three times in these two chapters, and partly because it seems to be a separate book, a separate separate, com complete piece of writing that interrupts those, if you remember last time, if you were here, we saw those two series that began in chapter 5 and then resumed in chapter 9 and seemed to be broken in the middle with this stuff in, in, inserted inside. Whatever the history of how that came to be and whether Isaiah himself meant it that way or his disciples or whoever put it together like this or just a sloppy editing job, I don't know. Um, uh, it seems to be a separate message that comes in the middle of the impending doom. And part of that interruption is that even with the impending doom, God's not done with us. God hasn't said, well, this is too bad. We're going down the tubes. Um, it's one more offer of a chance to turn and, and be rescued. So the Emmanuel book. The context of this is one that we know we know some historical context better for these chapters than for much of the prophetic books. The war is called the Syro-Ephraimitic War. Syro for Syria, or Aram, as it was called in Old Testament times. Ephraim is a, a, a synonym here for the northern kingdom Israel, because Ephraim was the most powerful tribe. They've got the tribe of Judah in the south and the tribe of Ephraim vying for power. So Ephraim, just whenever you see Ephraim, it's a synonym for Israel, the northern kingdom. And these two, Syria and Ephraim, are attacking Judah. So the Syro, so from a Judaic perspective, the Syro-Ephraimitic War. Uh, the context, once again, as we've seen before, is the expansion and renewal of the Assyrian Empire. Assyria is here with Nineveh as its capital, and they're pressing in every direction to control peoples and land, uh, trade routes and uh, resources and money. Money is what it finally comes down to, of course, and power. Here are Judah and Israel. Um, 
feeling the brunt of this pressure. In this closer map here, you've got Judah in this, I know you can't read it very well in the back, but this is Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem. Here's Israel, or Ephraim, with its capital in Samaria. And way up there is Syria, or Aram, with its capital in Damascus. What happened, what the, what's behind the Syro-Ephraimitic War is the pressure of the Assyrian Empire coming in. Um, there are waves and waves of these attempts to get out from underneath Assyria's thumb. In this particular one, those two northern kingdoms, Israel and Syria, or Aram, allied together, put together an alliance, a coalition of states to resist Assyria. They've, they've co-opted or enlisted as many other countries around as they can to try to fight back. And they've, they've uh, appealed down to the king of Judah, his name to start with at the beginning of this story is Jotham, uh, to, join the, to join their revolt. Jotham said no. And so these two kingdoms in the north, we don't know anything about why Jotham said no, but he said no. These two kingdoms of the north then band together to attack Judah and put a puppet on the throne there instead. Um, so here's uh, the two, both with the red lines there, Damascus coming, uh, uh, Syria coming down from the north, Israel coming down from the north and attacking. And at the same time, two other peoples, the Edomites are harassing the southern part of Judah, and the Philistines are harassing from the west. It's not a good situation, coming at them from all directions. Well, right about at this point, Assyria, uh, Jotham of Judah has said, no, we won't join the coalition. And so this, the main partners, Syria and Israel, are on their way to attack Jerusalem and make them, make them become part of the partnership by force. King Jotham of Judah dies, and his son takes the throne. His son's name is Ahaz. Ahaz comes to the throne at age 20, inheriting this pickle. Okay? Here are the major partners. Here's Jotham, his son Ahaz, who now reigns from 735 to about 715. The king in Israel is a man named Pekah. He assassinated his prior king, who had the same name, basically, Pekahiah. Um, Isaiah will never call this guy even Pika. He could just call him Ben Remaliah, Remaliah's boy. A little disgust there going on there. Up in the north in Samaria, in, uh, pardon me, in Syria, in Damascus, is Ratzim, the last king of the, of the independent Syrian kingdom. And these two then, Ratzim and Pika Ben Remaliah, are attacking Ahaz. Everybody clear? <laughs> there will be a test at the end. <laughs> Okay, so I'd like to have you imagine now, you are Ahaz, you've just taken the throne, you're 20 years old, your father said no to this alliance, and now you've got an invasion coming against you, and you inherit this. What are you going to do? What are your choices? Make friends. <laughs> Make friends? Yeah, go, about, go out and say, well, my dad was wrong, so... You know, we'll help you out. Sure, there's one option, is to say, nope, Dad was wrong, I'm with you guys, we'll fight against Assyria together, I'm with you, I'll be on your side. There's one possibility. What other options do you have? I'm 20, I'm young, I can take you. I'm 20, I'm young, I can take you. Yeah, you can, you can beef up your military might, strengthen your defenses, and you're going to fight them off. 
after all, you're 20, you don't know any better. That's right. <laughs> exactly. There's a second option. Any more? Talk to Isaiah. Talk to Isaiah. <laughs> seek some spiritual help. Seek some seek divine guidance in it. Turn to God and to God's prophet. Well, there's a stupid idea. <laughs> yeah, there's... And that's actually, as, as we wrestle with this story um, and, and try to think about it in terms of our own day, for, for, for Isaiah to say, oh, Ahaz, just trust God. It's, it's a geopolitical nonsense to say that. It doesn't, that doesn't fit with the way our thinking and the way the world thinks. But that's what Isaiah is saying. So that's another option, would be actually to listen to Isaiah and get some help that way. What other options? Reach out to Assyria and join them. Reach out to Assyria. So if you've got if you've got these two kingdoms here attacking you so that they can fight back against Assyria, call for Assyria's help. If the if the neighborhood bullies are coming at you, get the bigger bully on your side. Okay, that's another option. Any others? Quit. Quit. Give up. <laughs> I don't want to be king anymore. I don't want to be king anymore. Yep. Yeah, you're you're getting the you're getting the sense of the options that are available to this poor young king that inherits this problem. Uh, anybody know what he chose? Okay, so here's the beginning of chapter seven. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. King Ritzin of Aram and King Pekah, son of Remaliah of Israel, went up to attack Jerusalem, but could not mount an attack against it. There's an interesting line. Even apart from Jotham, from Ahaz's choices, what's the reality of these two kingdoms invading and their, and their strength? They couldn't pull it off. Now, Ahaz doesn't know that yet, but it turns out that they're not going to be strong enough to make it happen. When the house of David, that would be Ahaz, heard that Aram had allied itself with Ephraim, northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Not surprising. You're about to be attacked from four directions, actually. Here's a little bit later in the chapter. Isaiah says to Ahaz, Because Aram with Ephraim son of and the son of Remaliah has plotted against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and cut off Jerusalem and conquer it for ourselves and make the son of Tabael king in it. There's their plan, is to conquer Jerusalem and put a puppet in their, in their place. Tabael, if I remember correctly, is a Israelite a background but lives over in Ammon across the river. Um, so, so we're going to put this underling in place so he'll jump to our demands. That's their plan. So in the midst of that, um, Isaiah is sent to go out and talk to King Ahaz. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shearyashuv, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Let's stop there. What would Ahaz, do you think, be doing up at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field? Any guesses? Checking the water supply. Checking the water supply. <laughs> if you're about to be besieged, you want to make sure you've got adequate water. This was north of the city, 
The waters of Shiloh are this pool just to the east of the city, down at the base of the hill. But this is, these are aqueducts up at the north end, supplying the city with water from that direction. So he's checking to see the water supply. He's checking, he's making war preparations, siege preparations. Isaiah is sent to him, and Isaiah is supposed to bring his boy along. That's kind of odd. His boy's name is Shear Yashuv. Does your Bible have a footnote about what that means? A remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. Now, first of all, notice that Isaiah is a prophet who actually has access to the kings. Isaiah himself is, some have thought, have suggested that he might actually have been part of the royal family, like, like a cousin or something like that. We don't know for sure. But in any case, he has access to the halls of power. So he, can, he is able to come to King Ahaz out there and say, Good morning, sire. Um, have you met my boy? A remnant shall return. <laughs> what do you hear in that? Hope. 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 Well, a remnant shall return. Shall return from where? Return from where? Carolyn, yeah. you're grimacing. Please notice that that name could cut both ways. A remnant shall return, don't worry. A remnant of what? From where? Or a rem only a remnant shall return. Is it good news or is it bad news? And the answer is yes. Okay. So here's my boy, remnant shall return. Take heed, be quiet, do not fear. There's guidance for you when you are being attacked by enemies from all around. Take heed, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, the fierce anger of Ratzin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. What does Isaiah think, or what does God think of these two kings from the north? Smoldering stumps, pieces of wood pulled out from the fire, and all that's left is some smolder. That's all they are. A couple verses later, thus says the Lord, it shall not stand, this invasion shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Ritzin. I'm going to skip the parenthesis there for the moment. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. Make total sense to you? What's going on here? The head of Aram is Damascus. What's Damascus? Syria. Capital city. In fact, the word capital means head, doesn't it? The head city. The head of Aram, the capital of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Ritzin, the king. So the, the capital is the head of the country, and the king is the head of the capital. That's what's going on here. Um, I think we can understand it only running throughout there. The head of Damascus is, the head of Aram is only Damascus. The head of Damascus is only Racine, etc. Here's how it plays out. So Aram, Syria, their capital is Damascus, and their king is Racine. That's where the, the line of heads there. Ephraim, or Israel, its capital is Samaria, and its king is Pekah ben Remaliah. Now, Isaiah doesn't spell out the third 
line of this one. But if you apply the same question to Judah, the head of Judah is Jerusalem, and the head of Jerusalem is Ahaz. <coughs> Ahaz. David. Ahaz, son of David, David's throne, yeah. Or God. Or God. There's just a little tantalizing question that Isaiah is suggesting out there. The heads of these other nations are only Ratzim and Ben Ramaliah. But who's the head of, the, of this country? Who's the head of Judah? Is it you, poor 20-year-old Ahaz? Or is it someone else? And then, at the end of this, in the middle of this first scene, the climax of this first scene, God, God has Isaiah say to Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Here's the central call. Will you stand firm in trust? <clears throat> or not? There's the Hebrew, because I know you're all working with Hebrew, right? Im lo ta'aminu ki lo ta'amenu. Notice that these are the same verb. Um, just different forms of the verb. Um, it doesn't translate very easily into English. Um, our word amen, amen, there's the a-m-n, is part of that too. Amen means to be trustworthy, to be count onable. Um, when we say amen, we're saying let it be so, let it be firm and trustworthy. Um, if you do not count me as firm, you shall not be firmed yourself. Ahaz, where will you stand? Will you count on me as, tr as firm and trustworthy? Or not? Thoughts and comments before we leave this first first um, vignette? Do you think Ahaz understood that? Understood this, this yeah. sentence? Um, whether he understood it as a call to trust God or not, uh, this is certainly a call to trust, and he would have heard that. Um, if he would have heard all the dimensions of it, I don't know. He's only 20. I'm 72. I don't understand all the dimensions of it. Yeah. Part of the kind of haunting question for us throughout this is, what does it mean to trust God in the middle of geopolitical messes that just don't make sense? Now, just here's the one piece that will move outside of Isaiah. We've been moved to 2 Kings. You don't need to look it up. Uh, 2 Kings 16 and its parallel in Chronicles tells the story of what actually happened. So here, here we find what Ahaz actually chose. Ahaz sent messengers to King Tiglath-Pileser, son of Assyria, of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. What opportunity did he choose? Assyria. Call for the big bully to help against the little bullies. That's his choice. I am your servant. So he puts himself underneath. He's now, he's now a client king underneath the empire of Assyria. I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of, of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took... My, my guess is, by the way, that when Tiglath-Pileser heard that message, he said, sure, I'd be happy to. I was planning it anyway. <laughs> Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Israel, to king of Assyria. What would you call a present today? A 
bribe, a tribute. Yeah. You're buying his help. It's not a present. You're invited to read between the lines geopolitically here. The king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Kir, and he killed Ritzin. 732, uh, King Ritzin of, of Assyria is killed. That's the end of the Assyrian, of the, of the Aram Syrian um, dynasty. And it no longer exists from this point as a separate kingdom. That's the answer to that one. Then, when King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet King Tiglath-Pileser of Assyria, he thought he'd take a vacation, huh? I'm going to take a vacation and visit King Ahaz, King Tiglath-Pileser. No. What's he doing? You're going to meet the one who just whomped your enemies, the one that you bought off. And you're meeting him at Damascus. You're not going way back to Assyria. King Tiglath-Pileser has summoned you. Okay, come. I've done what you asked. Now come. When he was there, he saw the altar that was at Damascus. King Ahaz sent to the priest Uriah a model of the altar and its pattern exact in all its details. Uriah built the altar in accordance with all that Ahaz sent. He's, he's there uh, sightseeing there in, uh, in Damascus, and he sees this altar that he really likes and says, I'd really like to have one of those in my kingdom. Read between the lines. Currying favor. Currying favor. Now, do you suppose it's an altar to Yahweh, the God of Israel? No. no. Do you suppose it's an altar to the God of Damascus? Damascus has just been destroyed. You want to build an altar to the God of the a kingdom that just lost up there? Who's it an altar to? The Assyrian God. The emperor has put and I have put place there an altar to Ashur. That's actually the old Norwegian god, Yashur. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> an altar to Ashur there in Damascus, saying, the god of Assyria rules Damascus. And what does it mean now for Ahaz to say, oh, I want one of those down in Jerusalem too. Yeah. This is a clear message that now Judah God's, and God's people there are under the thumb, and under, under the thumb not only of the emperor of Assyria, but of the God of Assyria. The bronze altar, this is the altar, look, look at the details here. This is the bronze altar to the Lord in the temple of Jerusalem, just out front of the temple. The bronze altar that was before the Lord was removed from the front of the temple, from the place between the altar and the house of the Lord. Oh, and he placed his altar, the new one, in front, on the north side of the altar. What's happening here? The altar to Yahweh, to Israel's God, gets put around the corner. And the altar to Assyria's God is front and center. King Ahaz commanded the priest, saying, On the great altar, the new one, offer the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, da 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 uh, and at the bottom. But the bronze altar will be for me to inquire by. Do all of the regular offerings that we do for the Lord on a regular basis on the Assyrian altar. And I'm going to use the altar to Yahweh as my own chapel to check in with God myself. That was a notice Ahaz's choice and the results of Ahaz's choice. 
Now, these two chapters are dominated by three children, three boys. They all have symbolic names, and they all have something to do with the coming crisis that's hitting Judah, chapter 7 and 8. We've met one of them already, Shear Yashuv, and he is Isaiah's son. In chapter 8, we'll meet one called Maher Shalah Hashbaz, that's a mouthful, um, who's also Isaiah's son, very clearly in the text. In fact, he's born in that chapter. In the middle is one named Emmanuel, and the question is, whose son is this? At the end of chapter 8, uh, God tells, uh, Isaiah says, See, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts. I and my children are signs from the Lord about what's happening. Does that mean those two sons, or is it Emmanuel as well? It's ambiguous. But the children themselves are sign messages from God. Okay, so far? Here's what the names mean. You know now a remnant shall return. Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us or God is with us. You can read it either way. And the third one, Mahershala Hashbaz, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. I hate to be him in class writing my name on the board. Okay. With each of these now, there's something about the timing of how long it's going to take before God delivers Judah from this attack from the north. I, I dropped out that parenthetical sentence back in chapter 7. Um, God says, within 65 years, this problem will be gone. These two kingdoms will be gone. How helpful is that? You're facing a, an attack? <laughs> Don't worry. 65 years from now, it won't be here. What about tomorrow? Okay. Um, with Emmanuel, the middle one, um, it's before he reaches, before he knows to the difference between good and evil, the problem of these, these two northern kings will be gone. How long is that? What age do you start to know the difference between good and evil? If you have yet. Teenage years. Teenage years, perhaps? The law says age eight. The law says age eight. Twelve. A bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah happens at what? Twelve, fourteen, something in there. Um, age of discretion. People think of it differently. Kids pretty young can start to know the difference between right and wrong. So anywhere between age six or so and age middle of teenage years, within that amount of time. So what's ha what's happened between here and here in terms of the timing? It shrunk. Without much past, I mean, this, this war, this attack only happened for a couple of years. So it's not like we're waiting for somebody to grow up. The third one, Maher Shalah Hashbaz, before he can say daddy and mommy, those two kings, kings will be gone. And he's just born. How long now? A year max? Eight months, nine months? the kind of fast telescoping of the time. So if this one wasn't very helpful, it gets more encouraging or not as the time goes on. Maher Shalah Hashbaz, chapter 8. The Lord said to me, take a ta large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to Maher Shalah Hashbaz 
have it attested for me by reliable witnesses, the priest Uriah and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah. What's he doing with this? Making some kind of public record. So in advance. Then I went into the prophetess. We don't know who she is. We, for the usual presumption is that this is Isaiah's wife. Um, does she also prophesy? If so, we don't know anything about her prophecies. It's one of those mysteries of who she is exactly. And she conceived and bore a son. So this is clearly Isaiah's son. And the Lord said to me, name him Maharshala Hashbaz. Poor guy. <laughs> For before the child knows how to call my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of, of Samaria will be carried away by the king of Assyria. So all three of these kids, this before such and such happens, within this time frame, the problem of these two kings will be gone. Okay. Now the one to spend some time on is the middle one, Emmanuel. Who is this? Four legs and a bushy tail sounds like a squirrel, but I'll say Jesus. <laughs> okay. So the first episode was when Isaiah brings a remnant shall return along with him to confront Ahaz and encourage him and invite him to trust and not make these other stupid choices that Isaiah ended up, that Ahaz ended up making. So here's a second episode then. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, the king, presumably through Isaiah, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God that it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask a sign for what? To trust him. Here's God going out of God's way to say, Ahaz, I know you're only 20 and you're struggling with this and you're having trouble trusting. What kind of a sign can I give you that will reassure you and enable you to stand and trust me? God doesn't very often offer that gift of signs. We often approach God with signs. God, would you please give me such and such a sign? And God says, hit it. <laughs> but here God offers that gift. What's Ahaz's response? I will not ask. I won't put the Lord to the test. How do you read that? What's his attitude? He doesn't trust God. He doesn't trust God. A fearful response. Or humble. Or, humble. or humble. You can read it more than one way, can't you? On the best reading, he is a pious young believer in Yahweh and knows that you don't put God to the test. Oh, I won't do that. That's we've been taught not to ask God for tests. However, at the same time he's on his cell phone calling a moving company to move that altar around the front of the temple. <laughs> That's the others. Say that again. <laughs> However, he's also on a cell phone calling a moving company to move that altar back around to the front of the <laughs> Yep. We don't know the exact timing of when Ahaz made his choice. Um, he may not have made it yet. He may be struggling to make, make it. Or he may already have made it and is already on his cell phone. Yeah. So that you can either read this on the best side as a pious young Israelite believer, or on the negative side, 
as someone who's already made his choice. And no, I'm not going to put God to the test. Um, or anywhere in between. How does God and Isaiah read it? God's going to give you a sign whether you want one or not. It doesn't say it in the text, but you can put right in here. Hear then, O house of David. That's BS. <laughs> I think that's implied with what comes next. Um, is it too little that for you to weary human beings that you want to weary God also? Come on, Ahaz. Don't, don't give me this stuff. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. So, Isaiah won't, Ahaz won't ask for a sign, but God's going to give Ahaz one anyway. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child, and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. You've heard this verse before? <laughs> Usually around Christmas time. Matthew, of course, quotes it in Matthew 1, about the birth of Jesus. Look at those two. Can you read it from the back? Look at those two and tell me how they're alike and how they're different. Well, the key word I see is the difference between young woman and virgin. That okay. causes us a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a difference between young woman and virgin. Okay. What else? In this one, the young woman is already pregnant. She is with child and shall bear. Here is future. Is there in, so is that the difference between the I in Emmanuel and the E in Emmanuel now and future? Uh, no, there's no meaning difference at all. Okay. It's simply Hebrew and Greek. Okay. And so you'll see Emmanuel spelled both ways right. all over the church. Churches are named Emmanuel, Lutheran, or whatever, sometimes with an E, sometimes with an M. Uh, the I of oh, the M. <laughs> the I M M is Hebrew, um, and the E M is Greek background. So it's gone through Greek and into English in Matthew. That's all the difference. Mm -hmm. Well, the young woman's going to name him, and in the other one, they shall name him. Yeah, here the young woman is naming him Emmanuel. In this one, they, not unspoken who, they shall name him Emmanuel. I always thought it was interesting, by the way, in the Matthew one, was the, the angel Gabriel quotes this text to, to Joseph. And you shall, they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so, by the way, name him Jesus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what does the text mean in Matthew? What's it all about? Here's Joseph, is betrothed, is pregnant. Not by Joseph. Joseph is struggling with this. So this angel appears and says, fear not take, to take her as your wife. Um, the child with, I don't want to, I'm mixing Luke and Matthew there together. Um, quotes this passage and then says, you shall name him Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. What does the name Emmanuel mean for Matthew? God with us. 
The name of this child is God with us. And Matthew means that this is God. This baby is God with us. Okay. Then you've already found those differences. Hineha um, Amahara, the young woman is with child. Hineh uh, is behold, Ha'alma. Uh, alma means uh, a, a young woman of marriageable age, of sexual maturity. It does not have any reference as to whether she's virginal or not, this Hebrew word. It simply means she is she's old enough to marry and to bear kids. It doesn't say whether she's married or not, whether she's virgin or not, it's the young woman. It's, it's quite ambiguous that way. There is a specific word in Hebrew for virgin, that's Bethula. And if that's what Isaiah had meant, he would have said Bethula. He said Alma, the young woman. Now, in between, in uh, 3rd century BC, a translation of the Old Testament was made from Hebrew into Greek. We call it the Septuagint translation. And that by that time, the Greek word Parthenos, the Greek Parthenon, the temple to the virgin goddess, Athena is, Parthenos can mean either virgin or young woman. It's used both ways. And that's the word that the Septuagint used to translate this. So early Christians, as they read this, the Parthenos will, will bear, bear a son. Happened to match up exactly with what, um, what happened with Mary and Joseph and Jesus. And so Mary, uh, both Luke and Matthew are declaring the virgin birth. Whatever, however you may struggle with that issue or not, um, that is part of their declaration. And, and Matthew is using this Parthenos to say, look, Isaiah foretold it. Doesn't mean it in Isaiah. Yes? What's the word for young man or virgin? A young man? Why is it only when young women that are virgin? Who the young men I think there are a bunch of, bunch of words for young men. Probably, <laughs> probably... Um, I think you've got your finger on something there in scripture and in the culture that nobody cares much about whether the men are virgins or not. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, and I have to, I, I'm losing the Hebrew words out of my head right now. The, the Greek word would be oh. neonis, a young man. Okay. And that's pre, that would be presumed to be um, too young to be to be sexually active, I think. But I'd have to check that. Just popping up. <laughs> I think I think that's I think that's appropriate. That the questions we bring to scripture make things pop up and ask questions about them. I just don't happen to have an answer for you. Okay. Then the verb hara is has conceived. There's Hebrew tenses are are ambiguous, they don't match what uh, European tense, tense verb, verb tenses exactly, but hara, this particular tense, is a completed action sort of verb. It could be past or it could be present, but it's already accomplished. So she is pregnant already. Okay, so whoever Isaiah is talking about, um, so King Ahab, God's going to give you a sign. The young woman, whoever she is, is pregnant. And she's going to bear a son and name him God is with us. Who might she be? How does the sign work? Is that 
Isaiah's middle child named Emmanuel? I mean, has his wife given birth to that child yet? Or? That's one strong possibility. Um, and the very fact that the whole, you've got these three parallel boys in, the, in these two chapters, and at the end, God's saying, see, I and the children God has given me are signs. Um, I think you could easily read that as Isaiah's child. But here's a second child given a, a meaningful name. She's pregnant and she's about to give birth. And we'll name him Emmanuel, by the way, Emmanu um, is with us, Ale is God, and you can read that either as God with us or God is with us. Uh, Hebrew works like that, it's ambiguous. So this is not necessarily saying this baby is God in Isaiah. Okay? So how does the sign, for the sign to work at all, as a sign for Ahaz, this has to be a young woman that's known to both Isaiah and Ahaz, that they can see and know that when she delivers, and she, and she names her child Emmanuel. Options, she could be Isaiah's, she could be Isaiah's partner, she could be one of the king's wives, or harem, or whatever. She could be someone else well known to them both. Uh, some suggestion has been this child to be born will be the next king, Hezekiah, who actually turns out to be a pretty decent king. That's one way this is sometimes read. There's the next question. Is Emmanuel good news or bad news? A remnant shall return. Good news or bad. So the speed spoils, the prey hastens. The spoil speeds, the prey hastens. Can read it good news or bad. God with us? Is that good news or bad? How long is that going to take? How long is it going to take? Sound like to me. Okay. And how long will it last? How long will it last? And is God with us? To smite us? Or? To smite us? Or to, like that bumper sticker that says Jesus is coming soon and he's really angry? It <laughs> <laughs> actually says something different on the bumper sticker. But, but, yeah. yeah, is God with us? Good news or bad? It depends. So here's, here's how the rest of the passage goes. That, of course, we lift it out of context for Christmas. Now let me say clearly, let me say, um, when we read this at Christmas time, when we read especially the Matthew version, Matthew is declaring Jesus to be God's child, um, born miraculously there to Mary. Um, and this is a sign of God, God's presence here in our midst. All of that is appropriate as we read Matthew. Luke is, I mean, Isaiah is different. Here's what flows from it. He, this child, shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. So that by the time he reaches the age of discretion, he'll eat curds and honey. Is that good or bad, eating curds and honey? Good stuff. Could go either way. Not clear what it means yet. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. By the time, so here's part of how this sign has to work, if it's going to work. By the time this child reaches the age of discretion, these two kings will be gone. That still sounds like a little ways off. Um, I like the third version better, like by the time you can say mama. 
Then the Lord will bring on you and on your people and on your ancestral house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, since the day of the split of the kingdoms. God's going to bring on you the king of Assyria. Is God with us, good news or bad here? Bringing Assyria against you. On that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that's at the sources of the streams in Egypt and for the bee that's in the land of Assyria. Here you've got ancient enemies from opposite directions uh, coming against you. A fly and a bee. And they'll come and settle in all the ravines. <laughs> On that day, the Lord will shave with a razor hired from beyond the river. Here's the king of Assyria. It's called a razor that God has hired. God's going to shave the hair of the head and the hair of the feet and take off the beard as well. Interpret, please. How many of you have hairy feet? You don't have to answer that. You don't have to answer that. The, the feet are a euphemism. Um, this, this king is going to come and shave off, shave your heads bald and shave your pubic hair off as well. What's the message of that? Shame. Shame. You're going to be shamed, put to shame by this king. On that day, one will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and they'll eat curds because of the abundance of milk and the, and they give that they give. For everyone that's left in the land shall eat curds and honey. Now you can get a better sense of the curds and honey. Good news or bad? Depends about if you're the one that's left. If you're the one that's left. If you're the one that's left, you're going to be fine, but yeah. most everybody else is going to be Yeah, fine. so it's clear. Everyone that's left, we got remnant stuff. Those that are left. And what kind of food will they get to eat? Fancy banquets? They'll keep alive one cow and two sheep, and they'll get to eat curds. And they'll find honey in the ravines. So they'll at least have some basic sustenance. But this is not fancy feast. This is not banquets. On that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines will become briars and thorns. You'll go out into them with bows and arrows. You'll go hunting there. All the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you won't go there because it's all briars and thorns. They'll become a place where cattle are let loose and sheep tread. What's left of all of the agricultural land? All gone back to nature. Yeah. Not a pretty picture. Okay. You're all really encouraged and excited so far? <laughs> <laughs> Waters of Shiloach. Chapter 8, verse 5. Would somebody read for us, please? <laughs> Chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and melt in fear before reason and the son of Ramalia, therefore the Lord is bringing up against it the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise above all its channels and overflow all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah as a flood, and pouring over it will reach up to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Thank you. What do you hear? What do you see? What do you notice? 
didn't trust me, so this is what's going to happen. Yeah. You chose not to trust me, and here's what will happen instead. And notice, by the way, it's its people that have refused. But they refused it under the leadership of this. Here's the key role of a leader. Uh, the leader leads the people in either uh, trusting or following a different direction. Uh, so because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, you get a different water instead. Namely, the Euphrates River. Yeah. Yeah, so this, um, what, the, the Shiloh as we mentioned, the first day is this, is this Gihon Spring at the base of the, of the old city of Jerusalem. You can go visit it today. There's a, there's a beautiful pool there of fresh water all constantly welling up, always there year-round. Because you refuse this gentle, non-flashy water that God provides, a different water is coming. And when you see the river in, in the Bible, it usually means the great Euphrates River running through the Mes uh, Mesopotamia. How far removed um, is this from the Exodus, like in years? Because to me, there looks like there's some kind of echo. Yeah, um, about 700. Okay, so the people might have thought of something about um, the Exodus. Good question, yeah. Did you hear her question? How far is this removed in time from the time of the Exodus? Where would the people have thought of Exodus waters? And you've got, in the Exodus story, you've got two, two times it happens. On the way leaving, Jerusalem, leaving Egypt, when God splits the sea. And then as they're coming into the land, when God splits the Jordan River for them to come in. So twice a miraculous water crossing. Uh, the story certainly is there. Um, 700 years ago, guiding and shaping the people's imaginations, they may very well have thought about this. Um, but that one's not a save. This one's not a saving image, like that one was. Yep. Here, by the way, this is a model of the city of Jerusalem in biblical times. Uh, somewhere down here on the base of the hill, this is the old city of David. Uh, Pool of Siloam was later built down here. On the up, up above part there is the Temple Mount where all of that stuff happens. Somewhere down in here, at the base of the hill, is this pool of Siloam, or this Gihon Spring, the waters of Shiloh. In the next generation, King Hezekiah will build, have his men build a tunnel through solid rock and bring the water inside here, inside the city gates, to protect it even further. Uh, but you can still go there, and you can walk that whole tunnel if you want to. A little claustrophobic. So therefore the Lord is bringing against it the mighty waters of the river it will, of the king of Assyria and all its glory. It will rise above its channels. So here we have a river in flood stage and overflow its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. Well, this doesn't work ge geographically, of course. You can't get the waters of the Euphrates to come up over the mountains into Judah. That doesn't matter. It's a picture, okay? It'll sweep on into Judah as a flood and pouring over it will reach up to your, to your neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. This invasion of Assyria is going to come right to your neck, Jerusalem, which it did. And then, O Emmanuel, what's that doing there? We're listening to hear you tell us. <laughs> so on the one hand, it, you could well read that middle child as one of Isaiah's children. 
But here now, this name Emmanuel is lifted up as something more significant. Who is Emmanuel here? Is it that boy? And why is he singled out rather than Shear Yashuv and Maharshala Hashbaz? Um, or is it, is it the people as a whole? Who is Emmanuel here? Well, what about the odd figure of speech about the wings? To me, that doesn't really fit with the image that's being given there. It's a, it's a weird double image, isn't it? It's an image of a flood with wings. The wings of the flood come up around your, covering all your whole land. Was there a flood? Uh, no, no. This is this is simply an image of the invasion. There was no flood at that time. So band together, you peoples, be dismayed. Listen, all you far countries, and gird yourself and be dismayed. Gird yourself and be dismayed twice. Take counsel together, but it shall not be brought. But it shall be brought to naught. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. The language in there of banding together and taking counsel together, or conspiracy down here at the bottom, uh, can, you can, that can refer to the conspiracy of the two northern kings coming against Judah, or it can refer to the conspiracy of Judah with Assyria coming against the attackers. We're doing all of our, be our best thinking to figure out how in the world we can work this thing out and save our skins. And whether you're on one side of it or on the other side, what's the end result of it all? Empty. It will all come to a no to naught. It will not stand. For Emmanuel, it says again, for God is with us. Here's that name as both good news and bad news. God's presence overrides any direction of trying to fix it yourself. Let God be your fear and let God be your dread. Let God be what you come as holy. Here's a piece that shows up in the New Testament. God will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against, it stumbles over. In the New Testament, that becomes Jesus, the stumbling stone. So this, the, uh, God's presence is a, is a point of stumbling for these people. Will they trust or will they not? Here, the end story of this. I want to get, get the end story and then ask you some questions. At the end story, at the end of this chapter, Isaiah closes shop. He's been trying to get through to Ahaz and get through to Ahaz, and finally, time to close the book and go home. So, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Notice, by the way, that Isaiah has disciples. This is one of the only verses we have that gives us a clue about these prophetic communities. Who are these disciples? Are they trained as, as, as prophets themselves? We don't know. It's all just tantalizing. But there are disciples. Write this down, folks. Seal it up. There, the king isn't listening. I will wait for the Lord, who is now hiding his face from the house of Jacob. See, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel. And then it goes on to say, so if now the people who no longer have a word from, the, from God to listen to, if they go after the ghosts and familiar spirits that chirp and mutter, I'm really curious about that, what kind of ghosts chirp and mutter, uh, and say, shouldn't the people consult their gods and consult the dead on behalf of the living? 
So now in the, in the loss of God's guidance, the people seek whatever kind of guidance, occult guidance they can find. Surely those who speak like this will have no dawn. They'll see only distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust, thrust into thick darkness. And the chapter closes. Next time, there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. A promise of sudden reversal beyond this debacle. But that's next week. So we have a couple minutes. What kind of sense do you make of this for... So here you've got this king who has all these different options open to him. And Isaiah is encouraging him, trust the Lord. Trust God in this situation. With all that that means... And it doesn't just mean go on your merry way and keep trusting God. There's a lot of content to what it means to trust God. How do you hear that for today? How do you hear that for the things that, that you face, or that we face as a people or a congregation? One minute to solve it. God's in it for the long haul. God's in it for the long haul. God's in it for the long haul. Sometimes we want things to happen in the next month, in the next year. That would be nice, but you've got to trust that, that you're in the Lord's hands and that it will be resolved in his favor eventually. And in the meantime, you have to keep faith. Kind of like the uh, Martin Luther King saying, the Ark of History. Yeah. Was it King that said that? Talk about the Ark of History? Yeah. Yeah. Bends toward it's justice. Mm -hmm. I like the message translation when he said, don't be like this people. Always afraid somebody is plotting against them. The conspiracy theory. Mm -hmm. Don't fear what they fear. Don't take on their worries. If you're going to worry, worry about the holy. Fear God of the angel armies. The holy can be either a hiding place or a boulder blocking your way. And that's kind of what you yeah. pointed out in many examples today is the... the uh, it's a paradoxical nature of a concept. Or yes. Very yeah. paradoxical. That's helpful. Thank you. We're at the closing time. Let's sing the song, shall we?